everybody. It is episode 76 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas. Steve is piping in via the interwebs. Hey, Steve. Hello, world. So we are excited to have a little bit of a different episode today once we get into our main content. You and I were talking about having a little fun with this episode. So we're going to do 10 of our running rants in this episode. Things that are our pet peeves in the running world. Some funny, some more serious. And I think there's some lessons embedded in this for everybody. But you and I are going to kind of go off on five each of our of our running pet peeves and sort of see where this conversation goes. So we're going to have a little bit of fun with this one for sure. So stay tuned for that. As always, we've got some intro topics to cover. Starting with one, oddly enough, Steve, from the baseball world. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if those listening saw this, but the catcher for the Chicago White Sox Wellington Castillo recently tested positive for EPO and now is going to be serving an 80-game suspension. He released a statement after he was busted, basically apologizing, saying he made a a personal mistake. (laughs) And so, I mean, to me, this is just crazy to have a catcher, a guy who pretty much moves not at all during the game, sits behind the plate, and then sits in the batter's box, might occasionally run the bases, testing positive for the EPO. It just, it just goes to show you that no matter the sport, no matter the sport, people are looking for an edge wherever they can find it. But I have no idea what this guy was thinking. Well, he obviously doesn't understand. But, you know, it's just crazy to me to think about how our sport gets so just eviscerated by the public because they think we're everybody's drugged drugged up, which they kind of are, but so are the professional football players and the professional basketball players. And obviously as you're hearing here, professional baseball, I mean, we still know that outside of Hank Aaron, who may have been coked up, but he probably was much pretty much wasn't doing anything else because there weren't drugs at the time that he was hitting all his home runs. But every other home run champ after that was all doped up. So it's like, I'm not trying to make an argument to say that it's okay to dope. I'm just saying that runners, the, the, the sports, the track and field world gets under such scrutiny when it's just the fact that we actually test and care about it as opposed to the other sports that some dude tests positive for EPO who's trying to hit home runs and trying to run the bases. That's crazy, but whatever. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. It makes me think that he has a really bad doctor or he got the wrong wrong information from somebody. Or baseball Maybe wants I'm- to make a make a make an example of him about a, a drug that really doesn't matter. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. They're like, well, EPO can't possibly help a catcher. But yeah, I'm like, did he get the wrong vial? Did did something get swapped? You know, was he using uh a, a doctor or source that sends out this kind of stuff and they accidentally sent him the track and field athletes vials instead of the the steroids or whatever it may be but it's kind of a funny kind of funny one but glad they caught him although this also underscores the fact that the the actual punishment levels in any of our professional sports here in the US 
at least the major ones, Major League Baseball, NFL, are still sort of silly slaps on the hand or wrist compared to what you might actually see in a track and field environment. You know, this guy loses a half a season of pay, but that's it. You know, he's still probably bringing home a couple million bucks this year. <laughs> so, you know, so why wouldn't, if you're in that environment where you have that at risk or in the NFL's case, a 20, a four game suspension, 25% of your salary, if that's what is at risk versus making millions of dollars and you still make millions, even if you get caught, why wouldn't you cheat? You know, I don't understand the how the the risk reward situation can be so out of balance. But nevertheless, we never thought we would see a baseball player using EPO, but the that day has arrived and now he's sitting out half a season as a result. So that's kind of a funny funny news from the doping world. Second thing I wanted to talk about was a, an article on Patrick Sang that was published on the the, the Spikes website, which is an IAAF microsite that tells stories of track and field. They did uh, a story on Patrick Sang, who's Elliot Kipchoge's coach, as well as Jeffrey Kamroar's coach. Just giving a little profile from him. You know, he's not a coach that finds himself in the spotlight very often, or at least puts himself in the spotlight very often. He definitely lets his athletes typically take the fanfare. I don't even know that I've ever seen an interview of him directly, but this article from the Spikes website, which we'll post in the show notes, has the most words from him that I've ever witnessed. You know, Patrick, as we've talked about before, was a University of Texas athlete, went on to compete in the world level in the steeplechase and won silver, I believe, in the world champs on a couple of occasions, had an Olympic silver in Barcelona. So definitely a legit athlete in his own right on the track, but now has come to coach athletes of all levels up to the marathon, including the great Elliot Kipchoge. He had a couple of interesting quotes in this article. The first that I sort of jumped to is right at the beginning where he says, it's like opium (laughs) being active in athletics as a coach and previously as an athlete. It's something I cannot do without. It gives me a big high. When I see an athlete perform, especially one who went from nothing to something, he goes on to talk about how the rapport between the athlete and the coach is really, really important. So he says, the biggest teacher to me is the feedback mechanism from the athlete. It can take a few months, maybe even just one month to learn that. And then he talks about the training fundamentals are the same across the board, but what is different is the abilities. We try to train people to respond to their abilities. It's an individualized training program in a group, really stressing that importance of the feedback loop between the coach and the athlete. So really fascinating stuff, but you also get a little bit of of the magic from him, which is that there is no magic. (laughs) It's just simple, simple, basic blocking and tackling, as you might say in football. But in a running context where there's not there's not anything crazy that they're doing, they're just doing the work. There is one magic thing in there, Chris, um, and I, I think that it's you you highlighted it, but it's something that a lot of people don't really get and don't really know exactly how hard it is. But that piece that he said about feedback, you know, I I say all the time that the way to have a good relationship with your coach is to have a positive feedback loop to create feedback loops that are available that are that are 
that allow the athlete and the coach to have open lines of communication and get to the point perhaps even where they're where they're intuiting what's ha- the other is going to say and how they're going to approach things. It's almost like having a coach makes it easier to self-coach in a way. Um, and that's, that is a, that sounds, sounds very simple, but it's an ex- exceedingly difficult thing to do if the coach and the athlete are not both in a position of being vulnerable and both being in a position where they're willing to listen and learn. And um, I think so many coaches that I meet are very top down, are very much like, this is how you do it. This is how it must be done. And that does two things. Number one, it elevates the coach to a level that's really not going to play out on race day, right? And number two, it creates athletes that are sheep, that don't have the ability to make their own decisions and don't have the ability to be adjustable in in real time as races go on. So I do think all the other stuff is super simple, but that one, that one statement he made about feedback loops is so critical and crucial and it's so nuanced. You know, you and I, Chris, we coached very different styles, but I've watched you do what you do. And you're definitely in that position of getting those feedback loops in a great spot. Um, You respond and handle the way you work with your athletes differently than I do. But we are both know the absolute essential piece to having those feedback loops in a pod, in a working. Um, even if they're negative, Chris, sometimes they're even more helpful. But um, anyway, that's the one thing about that article I wanted to highlight. That's that's uh, that's a real a real key to be looking for in coaches. If you don't already have a coach and you're looking for one, be sure you've got someone who wants to have open lines of communication and isn't just writing a schedule and then walking away from you and not having discussions. Yep, absolutely. He also talks about trying to find athletes that have a strong mind. So he says, most of the time, the athletes come with it. The ones who don't have it, you try to do what you can, but sometimes they are very slippery because you don't get to them, get to the end with them. An athlete with a strong mind, wherever they go, they will always perform. So he just talks about the importance of that strong, steely mindset, as it says in the article. So really fascinating stuff. You know, I think the thing with me, as we've talked about before, it's like, I don't really know what is all behind Kipchoge's magic and whether there might be some EPO involved. But I will say that knowing the group that he trains with, knowing Sang's, Patrick Sang's ethos a little bit it does seem like this is a group to believe in of those groups in kenya that that may or may not be operating with with sound ethics here so anyway it's 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 an interesting article we'll post it in the in the show notes you can check it out also talks a little bit about later in the article about the breaking two effort and how patrick saying was initially against it but ultimately got talked into it so Pretty interesting article, so definitely check that one out. The last thing we'll talk about as we do our intro here is some Prefontaine, Steve, uh, sorry, Steve Prefontaine, some Prefontaine classic predictions. It's going to be coming up by the time you're listening to this podcast. The results will already be up. It's going to be happening the weekend before this this post. So we definitely encourage you to check it out. We'll and we'll of course be doing our recap discussion. But we did want to throw out some predictions for you so you can check back and see if if Steve and I know what we're talking about. We're going to be <laughs> predicting 
We're going to be predicting different events. Steve's going to pick two. I'm going to pick two, and we'll see where we land, Steve. But you're going to start us off with the men's two-mile, which is happening on Friday. And all of these fields that we're going to discuss, by the way, are completely stacked. So if you didn't watch the pre-classic, go back and check out the results and see if you can find replays of these races because they're going to be fascinating. So what are your picks on the the men's two-mile, Steve? Set it up for us. Yeah, let me give you a little setup first. First of all, I don't know if this is the best race that's going to happen at pre, but it's certainly one of the most interesting. And part of that reason is because it's a distance that doesn't get run very often, Chris. So the two mile is, uh, you know, number one, many, we don't use the, the mile very often and we don't use it in any championship events um, across the world. And it's certainly rare. Occasionally you'll see the mile as a, as a one mile, but very rarely do you see a two mile. I think the Prefontaine Classic is one of the few places where this actually happens. And um, I think we've only seen like one or two people ever in the history of the world to go under eight minutes, which would be two sub four minute miles back to back. And though I don't think we're going to see that this um, on Friday, Chris, I do think that we are going to see a, a an epic race. The people who are running in this race are just amazing. You've got Basically, Mukhtar Idris from Ethiopia, who was the 5K world champ this past year. Um, you've got Edward Chesarek, the newly professional athlete who ran for the University of Oregon for many years. Many are excited to see him. He ran 349 for the mile indoors. He's ready to roll. You've got Paul Chalimo, the U.S. indoor 3K and 1500 meter champ, who also was a silver medalist from Rio in the 5000, who runs for the U.S., who just got nipped by another guy from Ethiopia who's going to be in this race. Um, uh, uh, Bur- no, from Bahrain, the Baliu, who was from Bahrain, who won the 5K and just barely beat uh, Chalimo. Then you've got Berega, who was the world indoor silver medalist at 3K. Um, you've got, from the American side, you've got Ryan Hill, Eric Jenkins, Hassan Mead, Lopez Lamong. I mean, Ben True. It's just uh, Emmanuel Bohr. It's crazy. It's just crazy. The level of competition. That's going to happen in this race, Chris. Um, and uh, oh, and I didn't even mention Mohamed, who's on fire this year, but he's more of a 5K, 10K guy. So I don't think we'll see that much of a of, of result from him here. But in this race, hopefully, it's an honest race with good pacers who throw it out there and get it going and get it rolling so we can see some real fun happen late in the run. But um, my pick for this race, Chris, is going to be Salomon Borrega, who I picked to win the world championships last year, and I was wrong. His teammate beat him, um, his teammate in um, Mukhtar Idris, although Borrega did a huge amount of the work. He hasn't raced yet this year, but I think he's going to show up on this day. And if our listeners who have been paying attention remember, he's the athlete that the great Holly Gieber Selassie is saying is going to be the next great. He's 18 years old, Chris. I think he was 17 years old last year. This guy is incredible, and he's fun to watch. He's ballsy. He likes to go to the front. He's not afraid to do the work. I'd love for Paul Chalimo to win this race, but I'm not picking him. I'm picking Borrega, and I think Borrega's going to win it, and I think it'll be very close. I think you're going to throw a blanket, put a blanket over the top six or seven athletes. They're all going to be coming down the finish shoot over the last 100 meters fighting for position. But I just have a feeling that Borrega learned his lessons, and he's going to be ready to go. So what about Chesarek? I think Cesarek will be right in there. I think he's going to get second, third. I mean, he might get fourth. I mean, if he got fourth here and he got beat by Mukhtar Idris, 
Paul Chalimo and um, Salomon Barrega, he would be basically getting beat only by the three guys who got one, two, and three at the World Championships in the 5K last year. And I'm not sure really how you could say that's a bad performance. So I just don't think that Cesarek is going to have the skills to win this event. Now, I would love to be wrong, but I just don't think he's going to have the wheels and be ready to go. If I'm wrong, I'll be happy to eat crow on that one. But um, I think Cesarek will see him in the three, four, five position in this race, but he'll be less than a second away from the win. Interesting. I like Cesarek in this one. It, it's, it's good that we get to see him against this kind of field because obviously we're not going to get to see Cesarek because he's the man without a country at the moment in a major world championship level event. So this is the closest we're going to get that and perhaps some diamond leagues in Europe well, and later for, this summer. And for that reason, Chris, that makes a great argument for what you're saying of why he could really show up. It could be that he and his coach, Coach Haas, have got him geared up to do something here. Uh, but we'll see what happens. I just think you're talking about the known three best 5,000-meter runners in the world. Known. Already known. And so I just think mm-hmm. Chesarek has got to he's got to prove himself before I'm going to pick him that he can get up and over that hump. And I'm happy if I'll be wrong with that. Fair enough. But I, I like Cesarek in this one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to counter your pick and say Cesarek gets the win. I thought we were just picking. Now, we're, now you're... Now well, we're no, I'm just saying. I'm just going to you know, create a little <laughs> tension here. It's awesome. So, you know, <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going Cesarek. You could have Borrega all day long. All right. Um, okay. So then the next one we're going to go to on... You and you're picked this one as well. Also a stacked field. This is basically the Olympic or World Championship final. And so what what we got going on the women's eight? Oh, it's madness. And it's madness and insanity, Chris. I mean, basically you've got what was the world championships this past year and what we're expecting to be um I think that this race could be even better than the world championships, but we'll see, you've got um, every single woman in this race, Chris, has no one in this race has not gone under two minutes for the 800 meters. Just start there. <laughs> that the entire field is filled with sub two minute 800 meter runners to start with. All right. Which is really amazing that there's four Americans, two Kenyans, you know, and then we've got one Ethiopian, one Burundian and one um, South African. Of course, the South African we're discussing, Chris, is Castor Semenya, who only has a few more, perhaps only a few more races at this distance um, before she's no longer going to be allowed to run this race, although we'll see how that all plays out. Um, But you've got Castor Semenya, the world champion. You've got Aji Wilson, who was third at Worlds. You've got Francine Nian who was second at Worlds. You've got Eunice Soom, who was in the final. You've got Wambui, who was on the final. And you've also got the Americans, Karushna Williams, who was the U.S. champion. You've got Raven Rogers, who has already run 201 this year and seems to be in a really good spot. And then, of course, we've got Charlene Lipsy, who looks like she's back this year. She's already run 201. And um, I think she beat me and Saba in the race that they ran earlier, or they were right neck and neck with each other. But I haven't even mentioned Habitam Elamu, who's from Ethiopia, who's also run 157.05. So, Chris. This race is going to be off the chain. 
One super interesting thing I heard this week, though, Chris, as there were more conversations going on about the the ruling with um, whether Castor or anyone who is um, in this weird gender weird gender mix situation that we discussed before um, is that Aji Wilson stated emphatically she hopes that both Castor and Wambui and Insaba well we don't really know if Wambui is not where she is exactly, but we know Niansaba and um, Semenya are in that c- questionable category. Um, Aji said she wants to race against them. She doesn't want them to go away. She wants them to be there, which is very, very interesting. Um, whether that's true and in, in when she's having conversations with her coach and teammates, I'm not sure. Um, but it certainly is an attitude and an approach that's going to serve her in, to her best interest as we look at greatness over the next couple of years. So my pick here, Chris, um, I, I just don't, I think Castor already this year has won one run 156. Um, Wambui's run 158 and Ajay's run 159. I would love to pick Ajay for this race, but I just am going to have to use my logical head and pick Castor. Castor also ran a very fast 1500 this year already. It just seems like she's operating on another level already this year. She seems to be angry and in a, in a place where she's you know, sometimes it takes Castor a couple of races or an early season before she gets her legs underneath her. But I'm going to have to pick Castor for this with my heart really leaning for Aji to try to get in there and maybe get an upset. But if she did win, Chris, it would be an upset and it wouldn't be um, a result that we would have expected. Another person I'd like to see in this race and I'm excited about seeing is Raven Rogers. She's been running, she ran some um, 400s this year already. Is she ready to really compete again at this level? This is a huge meet. She's going back, quote unquote, home, even though she's a Houstonian. She's from Houston, Texas. She ran at the University of Oregon. And so she's going home. The crowd will be going crazy for her in this race. So there will be some home, some home cooking going on there. So this race, Chris, it's hard for me to say to pick the two mile as a better event than this event when you look at it and see it. But I'm picking the two mile as a little bit of a better event just because it's such an unusual event and from a race perspective, it is not run very often. But holy shit, Chris, this 800 meter is stacked to the gills. Yeah, I agree with you. I think Semenya takes this one. She's only got a few races left competing, at least without hormone therapy, right. if, if the ruling stands. So I would imagine she's hungry for for wins, and as you said, already had a solid fifteen, so she's on form. I don't see anybody beating her either. All right, so now we're going to go two that I'll pick. Starting with, I'm going to start with the women's fifteen hundred. We've got, as you said, with those other events, also a stacked field here, particularly stacked from an American standpoint. You know, right now you've got probably, you know, all the best Americans in this field at this stage for the 1500 meter distance, including a trio of Bowerman track club ladies, Shelby Houlihan, Kate Grace and Colleen Quigley are in this field. You've got Brenda Martinez as well. And then Jenny Simpson, the great Jenny Simpson, who we know is on form because she has the U S two mile record from a few weeks back at Drake from international field standpoint, also stack Laura Muir, who recently did well at uh, world indoors. You've got, DeWitt Siam from Ethiopia, who's run a 358 before. You've got Chepkoech, Beatrix Chepkoech from Kenya, and Winnie Chibet from Kenya as well. Both legit contenders in this field. 
We didn't mention the American Danny Jones, who's from the University of Colorado, still in school there. She probably is a little bit outmatched in this one, I would imagine. But it will be interesting to see, to see how the collegiate performs. So like the men's two-mile, I think this is one that could be a, a blanket finish, depending on how things play out. I, I like with this one, because of recent form, I like Laura Muir versus Jenny Simpson. The American versus the, the Brit. To, to be going head-to-head at the very end for the win. We know Jenny is strong tactically, so probably has the tactical advantage. Laura Muir might have a little bit of raw speed advantage in terms of having the better PR and so forth, but doesn't necessarily always make the best decisions in races, although we saw that change when she got the silver at World Indoors in the 15 behind Shinzebi Dababa. So this one's tough, but I'm going with Jenny Simpson for the win. The American taking it over Laura Muir in second. And then I think one of the East Africans, either Chepkoech or Siam, will be pulling in at, in third place. What do you think? Am I crazy with those picks? I don't think you're crazy, but I'm going with Chepkoech for the win. Now, Chepkoech is such an interesting character because she has been um, among the best steeplechasers in the world for like three or four years now. Um, she's really, really, really good in the steeple. Um, but she's, for some reason, over the last this last year decided to move back to the 15, which is really intriguing. And so those P her PB um, was run this year, Chris. And I think that Chep Koech is a, is a, is I'm is a dark horse that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily pick. And my heart goes for Laura Muir and for Jenny Simpson, but I just think Chep Koech is going to come out on stage here and show up. Um, one person I would love to see, absolutely show up chris is kate grace i would love to see her get herself back in the mix with the best in the world it'll be very interesting to see how grace um houlihan and quigley do all three of them from the same training center we know they were up at flagstaff doing work and we know that they're um all sort of being quietly confident about what they're going to do at this meet they seem to be um of a form, not making any grand predictions, but I really hope we see Kate show up and, and run well. But I'm going to pick Chepkoech, and it's not just to be a, a contrary, Chris. It's more because I think that this is somebody that is sort of someone who's going to be flying under the radar because of her steeple experience and her steeple greatness. I mean, she's a sub, she's a real, she's a sub nine. I mean, she's a really fast steeple chaser. So um, we'll see how that plays out. But that's who I'm going to pick. I'm going to pick Chepkoech for the win. Fair enough. I like it. But I'm rooting for the USA, Jenny Simpson. All right, last event we'll pick is the men's steeple. Also a stacked field, basically reproducing the field you had at the Olympics in Rio and then in the World Champs in London last year. You've got Concessus Capruto, who's got to be your favorite, being the current reigning world champion. You've got the Moroccan Al Bakali, who's also been the mix in international meets. You've got Evan Jager, two-time medalist in world steeples. You've got Hillary Bohr from the American side, who is slowly creeping up to compete with the international field. Amos Karui, Paul Koech, also Kenyan athletes that can't be overlooked. Nicholas Bett. So also a stack field here with 
with the East, Af- East Africans, particularly the Kenyans, bringing their best to the mix here. Obviously, Evan Jager will be the American favorite of the mix, but I, I don't see him winning this. I think it's early in the season for him. We ha- he doesn't have a result yet this season other than the cross-country meet that he ran earlier this year, so he's got to be a little bit rusty, so to speak. This will be an opener, outdoor opener for him. Capruto already has a race under his belt, is the reigning world champion, and has proven unbeatable in many situations. So I think you've got to give the win to Concessus Capruto here. It'll be interesting to see what kind of trash talking or flair he brings to the finish because we've seen some crazy things from him, particularly in that meet earlier this year. But I think he's going to get the win. My guess is you're going to have Jager coming in in third. And I'm going to pick El Bacali for second place in this in this race. But we will see. I mean, I, I think it's going to be fascinating. Yeah, I'm really interested in this race too, Chris. I think I have to go with your picks in those orders. Of course, I'm going to bring in Kabeni just for our listeners to hear because you and I are such big Stanley Kabeni fans. As much yep. as we are huge Jaeger fans, we're both huge Kabeni fans. And it would be great to see him. He's been knocking at the door. And, you know, he he's not... He's got another eight seconds to cut off his PR to really be in the mix with these big races. But it's early season. A lot of different things can happen. And I think Kabeni has showed last year how aggressive he's been willing to be recently, you know. But I just don't see him. I see what you see with him is is, is him maybe moving and, and displacing Jaeger, if anything. The one thing I'm very happy to see, but also makes me really angry, is that the goddamn... French bastard, Marahin McKesey is not racing, probably because he's a doper and he doesn't show up to races like this. I'm getting on my soapbox early, Chris. Everybody get ready for the rest of this episode. But I don't want that guy to be on a race start again. I can't stand him. He's a, he's a loser, and I'm glad that he's not in this race, and I hope they never let him in another race again. Protesting, cheating, doing all kinds of things, and just good riddance. Get rid of him. I don't want him around anybody or anything. <laughs> You're here on that. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see if we'll see if Jager can can put can put some fear into Capruto or El Bacali. We'll see. Cabeni, of course, being from the US Army group that works with Scott Simmons, so it'd be nice to see him have a breakthrough breakthrough as well. I agree with that. But regardless, if you haven't checked up on the results from this race, from this meet, go check it out because Prefontaine definitely the Prefontaine Classic team definitely brought their A game in getting these fields assembled. And this is going to be one of the final really big meets at Hayward Field as we know it. Yes. You know, they're going to be knocking it down and turning it into a massive new modern situation for prepping for the world champs coming up in 2021. And so history is going to get torn down soon enough here, which is sad, I think, for those of us that have been to Hayward and understand the Hayward magic, but probably also exciting in that it will hopefully open up this world to other people, other fans, other ways to experience the meets that might draw in a new crowd. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to purchase my NBC Gold now, Chris. And this is this meet. When I looked it over the other day, I was like, okay, I just got to pull the trigger now as if all those other reasons weren't good enough. But this race, <laughs> um, this meet just looks off the chain from the distance perspective. 
I don't think I've looked at another um, Diamond League race over the years that had me so excited to see all these different races being run at the same place. If I could get to Eugene, I would love to be there for the last race in um, in that kind of setting. So um, anyway, it'll be it'll be it'll be a great thing to watch for sure. All right, so let's turn to our main topic. We're going to go through some running rants, pet peeves from you and I that we can hopefully turn into lessons here or there if we get to it, but definitely should be entertaining for everybody. We're going to be talking through things that drive us crazy in the running world and why, and maybe having a little back and forth between the two of us on whether or not we agree on each of these. And so we're going to go through 10 different running rants that drive the two of us crazy and why, and we'll cover that. One thing to note, you know, we might offend people here, so just be warned. But <laughs> I'm sure it, we're going it, to, Chris. It all comes it all comes with sort of love and fun. So keep that in mind as we go through this. We're gonna start with you, Steve. And I know you we each shared our five, so beforehand, but I'm I'm gonna not necessarily make you give those to me in any order. So where do you want to start on your first rant? Well, my first rant is probably the thing that makes me it, this one, it doesn't make me angry. It just makes me SMH for all those young people out there, right? It makes me shake my head. I just don't get it. I've never understood it. I guess I'm just so anti-technology that it doesn't make sense to me. But I've got a term. I think I came up with it. Um, I'm not sure if I have or not. If somebody else can find a precedent for me to use this term, then I'm happy to give credit where credit's due. But it came up with a term, Chris, called gerbling. And it comes from watching hamsters or gerbils in a cage and they need to get their activity and their exercise. So they jump on these little little circular treadmills, if you will. So they get their exercise. And every time I watch them do that, it makes me laugh. And then every time I get to watch at the end of a quality workout or a long run, I see all these runners doing little teeny tiny circles in our parking lot, running around in circles, going past our store and then back to our store and past our store and back to their store. And I know what they're doing. They're looking at their Garmin or their Geekometer, and they're believing that for some reason that the distance that that Garmin says is an actual eight mile course or 15 mile course. And they seem to think that that's going to be indicative of them going that exact distance. And I hate to tell you folks, but your watch is wrong. There's no way you can possibly get the exact right distance with a GPS device. You're getting pretty close, but you're just as close as me saying, oh, I think I averaged about 715 per mile on this run. And so I'm going to call it at X distance, X time frame, because I can do the math to figure it out. So Ultimately, I look at those folks and say, number one, they're type A, which is complete opposite of me. And there's no shame in being type A. I'm type Z, pretty much, or type Omega, I'd like to say, because it sounds a little better. But <laughs> the, 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 the type A people out there, they, I just think that the whole gerbling phenomenon makes me laugh because it's based on a completely complete fallacy of the unending exactitude of the Garmin and the GPS experience. To say nothing of the fact that I'm looking at people who basically probably have to push their, put their glass a few inches behind them or a few inches before them before they'll take a drink because that's how they roll. So, hey, I came out of the box hot with this one, Chris, because I'm sure I offended 90% of our listener base with this. But my real reasoning behind it is 
is that it doesn't really matter, folks. It doesn't really matter the exact mileage you run. And if you're putting it on Strava because you want it to be this perfect number, I think you're a little misguided in the overall purpose of what running is about anyway. It's a lot more about your experience or the process than it is about the end result. And the end result is very important. And, you know, at this podcast, we talk a lot about the end result and its importance. But we still, Chris and I both believe that the process is far more important than the end result. And it gives the greatest return. No matter what your PR is, you'll remember more the experiences with friends, the times you pushed and failed, the times you pushed and won. They'll all be of a, of a, of a sort and they'll all be valued by you. And so getting so minute and into the minutia of the exact number that you have to line you have to cross in order for something to be good or not sort of breaks the entire idea of what running is about to me. Now I'm a hundred percent confident, okay with the fact that people will disagree with me. And I am not saying that you should do it my way. I'm just telling you that I'm going to continue to shake my head. So First of all, by way of response, Steve, I, I have to read from the Urban Dictionary <laughs> on the word gerbiling, which I think will will make you, at least in some ways, appreciate more your terminology. But if you look up gerbiling in the Urban Dictionary, it says, an imagined act in which people <laughs> engage, engage in sexual thrills by inserting a live declawed gerbil into the anus of the other person. <laughs> so okay, well, I, I all right. Well, I wasn't thinking about Richard Gere here, but maybe, <laughs> maybe it has to come out right. <laughs> so, so anyway, that at least adds a little humor to this discussion. So all right, I didn't I'm, come up with the term gerbiling in this area. <laughs> right. So. I'm 100% behind you on this one. I also don't understand gerbiling. In fact, I'm so anti-gerbiling that if I come into the finish of a run and I'm under by point 0.1 or point whatever, I, I relish in the fact that I get to upload that data to Strava and drive all the gerblers crazy out there that are, that are stalking me on Strava. But yeah, it's silly because it's, it's completely arbitrary that number not not only is it inaccurate you're likely getting an inaccurate reading but it's also an arbitrary number because if you were measuring in kilometers versus miles then those perfect 0 0.0 numbers would look different today after our run here in austin we had two people show back up at our location i won't name them <laughs> they both ran the exact same route and distance on this morning one of them finished with their Garmin saying 0.94. The other one finished with their Garmin saying 0.04. And the one that, that had the 0.94 ended up circling back for a lap in the parking lot. <laughs> in order to get, and the other one was just fine, right? And the other one was just fine, sitting there, you that know, done with, done with the run. So, my I mean, head. <laughs> so they, they both ran the exact same distance today in terms of physical distance their Garmin said something different and we had to we had to correct that with the circle around the parking lot which to me is beyond silly and certainly isn't going to make an impact in your training in the least so yes let go let go people out there 
the the gerbling. I've also heard it called hamstering. Yeah, the gerbling or hamstering. It, hamstering is silly. I'm sure hamstring won't come up in the Urban Dictionary as anything. <laughs> no, right. So so we're we're not into either form of gerbling. <laughs> so so uh, what's your rant, Chris? Give us your first so, rant. All right. So my first one is we're gonna start off pretty easy here which is that I often hear people that join me really coming from a, a, a large variety of pace levels or starting points. And inevitably, one of the first sets of words out of their mouth is, I'm slow. And then they somehow use that as a caveat to explain other things about their, their starting point or their goals. So, they, they, I, so often people refer to themselves as, as slow. So my rant here is about excommunicating the word slow from your from your vocabulary, especially if you're someone who's training at any level, at any pace. As we've talked about before, Bill Bowerman says, if you have a body, you're an athlete. And so for me, this, this word slow, and look, I'm okay with using it in the context of relative pace for you. Like I'm running slower now than I was yesterday. But to describe yourself as slow is silly because anybody in my group or your group or any group that's out there doing work that's training for a race of any distance isn't slow because you're faster than the person on their couch eating bonbons and watching Netflix reruns. And so I like to say, and I think I've said it before on this podcast, there is no slow, only degrees of fast. And especially those who train with me at 5.30 in the morning. If you're awake doing work at 5.30 in the morning, then there is not slow. So my rant is for people to just to get that word out of their vocabulary as it relates to a way to define yourself. Because if you're doing work, if you're training at any level, I don't care what pace you are, whether you're a six-hour marathoner or a three-hour marathoner or a 2.30 marathoner, you are not slow. You are some degree of fast and working towards higher degrees of fast. You know, Chris, some of this just comes from the natural tendency of highly intelligent but humble people to be self-deprecating, you know? And I, I, and I know where you're going with this because I know that people um, have a real – there's two sides to this. There's the vast majority of people who are listening to this are probably people who see themselves as slow. But there's another whole group of people, Chris, who are kind of self-deprecating who – just don't know really what someone might consider fast or slow. Um, and, but regardless, the point comes down to this. You just got to be where you are. And I, I always love to tell people who train with me at any level that mark this down as a point. If you want to call yourself slow, just put a big post in the ground and put a flag around it and say, that was my version of slow, right? Because um, I know athletes who will tell you if they ran a 2:30 marathon that they think that they're slow. I mean, it's true. So it, this is a wide. This goes across a wide swath of the human population. But wherever you are, put down a flag at what you're considering slow, and then join one of our groups. Listen to our podcast. Follow our instructions as what we're talking about. And guess what? You will look at that other time as slower than where you are. But it doesn't change the fact that you never were really slow to begin with. It's just a varying level of degrees, as you discussed, Chris, 
And so honestly, it's a great opportunity for people to sort of embrace their authenticity in their current space and say, here I am now today. Because Chris, I'm slow based on my former self. And there's no way I'm ever going to be as fast as my former self. But that doesn't mean I don't go out and try to get it done. But I don't go out and train. I don't go out and put in miles. I don't go out and try to get the work done. So I'm with you 100%, Chris. Let's tear this term slow down, slow up and tear it up in a piece of paper, put it on fire and leave it alone and start talking about where we currently are and where we want to get to as the real key indicators of what we're trying to get done. I agree completely. Shred it. All right. Going to your number two, what do you got? Okay. My number two is a discussion of the topic of... Wait a second. I got a little turned around there, folks. Um, My number two is... Okay. Here it is. Those who have been at Rogue know this. They've heard it many, many, many times. I think I mentioned it once or twice on this podcast, but I, and maybe on the podcast training group. But this pet peeve is one that makes me crazy. And it kind of goes right into the one we just talked about, Chris, is that you got to be where you are currently before you start making judgment statements. And so many people I know will be out there and say, oh, it's so hot today. And two days later, they'll be like, oh, it's so cold today. You know what? fucking stand up and just be in the place you are in the moment you are. Weather is, people. It just is. It's not going to change. You're bitching about it, complaining about it, makes it only worse. Consider the attitude and the approach of what I like to call equanimous mind, all right? This comes from Buddhist thought. It is what it is. Stay in your space. If it's 100 degrees with 100% humidity, it's going to be challenging. But that adds another layer and another um, aspect of, quote unquote, potential greatness that you can run into later on. What happened to people who had no, no circumstance of running in 30 mile per hour winds and 42 degrees temperatures with sideways hail hitting them at the Boston Marathon? Then they, all they could do was complain and whine about the weather rather than it being looking at it as an opportunity to run into one of the worst weather conditions, Boston marathons in recent history. And so to me, this whining about the weather and bitching about the weather needs to stop. Two things are happening here. Number one, you're bringing yourself down. You're bringing yourself down to a level that is not even, in my opinion, naturally human. You are adopting some optimal space to live in, which is not what the human population needs to be thinking about on a day-to-day basis. We're resilient. We're tough. We're able to do other things. We roll with the punches. We are not, oh, it's just this. It started to rain a little bit. I need to not run anymore, right? I get, I get that there's certain reasons why someone wouldn't run in the rain, okay? Some of those are cultural. But it doesn't change the fact that you should still have the attitude and the approach of getting out into the weather and dealing with the weather. And then when the weather's beautiful, all of a sudden, look at Town Lake, Chris. On Town Lake, as soon as we get good weather, you can't even get out on the trail. Like fair weather runners. Like what's that all about? It just makes me crazy. So the first point is it's not really even in our – it, it's bringing you down. The second point is it's bringing down everybody around you. Like you are a negative energy suck when you start talking about bad weather. No, everybody knows it. It's a given. Again, hashtag weather is. So you're commenting about it again, only is peeing in everyone else's Cheerios, okay? 
So stop it. Weather is just what weather is. We're going to run in it at Rogue no matter what. We're going to go out and we're going to go get our job done. I can tell you this, Chris, the 10 best runs I've ever had in my life, only two of those runs were epic weather, beautiful, perfect weather runs. I always appreciate 80% of them. 80% of my favorite runs that I've ever done in my entire life were in inclement weather conditions. So let's stop with bitching about the weather and let's start saying weather is and accept it and roll. <laughs> Fair enough. I think I agree in principle, but this one is hard, especially like this morning when it was 90% humidity in Austin. 75 degrees and zero wind. So I understand sometimes when people let out a little grumble in those conditions. But my new favorite joke on this topic that isn't really that funny, but it cracks me up is <laughs> I, I've been telling people, you know, and, and in, look in Austin and Texas, especially, you know, male, female, whatever, we, we don't wear shirts because you, because the humidity is so high that you're basically trying to wear as little clothing as possible. So women are in sports bras, men are shirtless. You know, you've got to just have basically nothing on. And so my, my latest joke is just to ask the question before we start on a day like today. Is it, is it shirt weather today? Because <laughs> <laughs> I think it's shirt weather. That's borderline. Maybe borderline shirt weather. So that's, that's my recent joke just to try to flip a negative to a f slightly funny positive. And get and Chris, there is, that whole, there is that whole idea that misery loves company. And as long as everybody in that company is on board with the same thing and it relieves pressure, I don't have a problem with it. But it's the people, because most of the time people are just like, it's, it's not going to stop them from doing the thing they're doing, right? But I do think that it's still exhibiting a, point of weakness that's unnecessary and really can be problematic um, when the real nut cut comes down to doing the real hard work and getting stuff done in mid-July when it has to happen. And if you're still thinking that, oh, I should just adjust for everything that needs to happen, well, number one, you're not getting an, an accurate indication of what your body will do in certain weather conditions. And number two, Something already is on top of you riding you instead of you being on top of it riding it. And I just don't think that's a good position for people to be in. Preach. All right. <laughs> so that's your number two. Go to my number two here. And this one comes from my long history of working on the retail side of our business, working the shoe floor, seeing people come in, talking about shoes. And you, know, you often hear people say, man, running shoes are so expensive now. You know, the average shoe... You're going to pay 120 bucks, maybe up to 150 bucks. People talking about how expensive their running shoes are, seeing people that I coach, seeing people that walk in the door that have a pair of shoes that they've been wearing for a year, six months, who knows how long, because they're just trying to get every last mile out of this pair of shoes. And so my, my next rant here is on why are we skipping on our shoes so much as runners? Like, why are we such cheap bastards? When it comes to our running shoes, and I'm not talking to everybody, but there's definitely those out there that are looking at this and thinking, man, I, I just, I don't want to spend that much money on my shoes. Well, guess what? You're protecting the two things that are probably the most important to your mobility in this world, right? Your feet, your ankles, your legs. And, 
And why in the world would you skimp on something, especially if this is a sport you're serious about? Why would you skimp on replacing your shoes and protecting the fact that you can walk and move through space the way you do? It's just crazy to me how people are willing to spend 70 bucks a month on a cell phone bill, 70 bucks, 100 bucks a month on a cable bill, and yet they won't spend you know, 120 bucks every couple of months on their running shoes to protect their feet, ankles, legs, and to give them the best opportunity to excel in a sport where they're investing, likely if they're marathon training, a whole lot of time. So people, stop worrying about the price of your shoes. It's crazy to me. Like you've, you've got your two most precious athletes' assets under your, under your body. So take care of them. Replace your shoes frequently. You don't have to spend $150 on a pair of running shoes. That's for sure. You can find a good pair in the $100 to $120 range if you, if you go to a store that's going to really set you up well. But, but man, please replace them at a frequency that makes sense. It keeps you from being injury-free. That you know doesn't have your coach side-eyeing your shoes like, when the hell did you get those? Which I do <laughs> frequently to my athletes. So that's my rant. Don't skimp on your shoes, people. You know, Chris, tennis players pay for really expensive shoes. Skiers play for, pay for all kinds of things when they pay for their climber shoes are like $250 a pair, a pair. I mean, our sport, when you think about it, is as inexpensive as it could possibly be. And so that definitely attracts a certain group of people. But I don't think that that's most folks. A lot of a lot of what's happening, what you're discussing, Chris, in the nineties, man, in the eighties and nineties, most runners were the cheapest sons of bitches I've ever met in my life. Like crazy cheap. And it seems like that has changed over the last six or seven, maybe ten years, where people recognize, hey, inflation's coming into play. And and that's part of most of what's going on with most shoe stuff, Chris, is inflation. When they see the price goes up, it's not because it went up because there's an, an appreciably different technology that's come out that's made everything different, except for maybe those cheater shoes that Nike makes. But other than that, I mean, it's just it's just the price is going up because of inflation. This is what it is. The former $90 shoe is now $145. It's just the way it is. So um, yeah, I'm with you 100% on this, Chris. It's like, this is the least expensive sport you can possibly imagine. Don't skimp on your shoes, man. Don't do it. <laughs> All right. We agree there. We haven't disagreed yet, really. So, so number three for you. Number three. All right. This is going to piss a lot of people off. Maybe a whole bunch of new customers we have up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, but I can't stand pace groups, Chris. I can't stand pace groups in any guise whatsoever. The idea of a pace group just makes me want to shrivel up and die. I, if I walk into a place where I see pace groups commingling, I want to move to a completely different place, and I am a very social guy. So what's wrong with pace groups? Listen, you're not listening to your body the moment that you join a pace group and get in a pace group. This is on a training perspective. If we're doing going out and doing runs and doing training runs, your pace groups are dictating your training experience, and in the future, they will be dictating your racing experience. They also will mind fuck you into making you believe that you're either this slow or this fast. They'll also put you in a position where you may not be running in the correct biomechanical 
space that you should be running in. They will also give you a, a false sense of security or a false sense of not being in shape. I mean, I can go down a list of eight to 10 different reasons why training in a pace group is not optimal for a distance runner. Um, if you did it to just start something out and get started for the first time with a group, I get that. But be very, very wary of getting locked and loaded on a specific pace for a specific time because it's very hard to break out of that pace group. And then there's sort of la layers of what I like to call pecking order that get lined up with these pace groups that are also very problematic where people will um, say, oh, somebody's now uppity because they moved up to the next group or, oh, somebody sucks ass because they decided to move back to the next group. When guess what? The human body has different reasons for running different paces at any different time, and everybody needs to be ready to listen to their body. Number two, the other thing about pace groups, Chris, and this is probably where this started, and the most egregious place I have a problem with pace groups is on the marathon starting line. Pace groups cannot be counted upon. The individual men and women that lead pace groups are wonderful, wonderful people. They're volunteers. They're giving of their own time and energy to run 26.2 miles at your pace for you. But that doesn't make them experts at pacing. Even in Austin, where I think we've got some of the best pace group leaders ever for our Austin Marathon, they screw it up royally on occasion or all the time. They cannot be counted on. So to line yourself up next to a person that you think is going to carry the baton for you and get you to your finish line on time, you are basically just pissing in the wind your race result. You're giving up your race result based on trying to run with somebody else. Did you run with other people throughout the entire six-month training program before you started with? If the answer is yes, are any of those people at the starting line? And the answer is no then do not plan on running with a pace group or running with anybody else. They are good gauges. They're good to kind of tell where you might be positioning. But man, these people are, the, they, infallible is not a descriptor that they can call themselves. They will screw it up almost to a man or a woman. It happens all the time. So people, take your own destiny in your own hands. Take your responsibility in your own hands. Do your training with people that run the same paces or the same goal times, but also pull back from them when you need to or run away from them when you need to. And, at, and for God's sake, do not get on a starting line of a race and think that you're going to run 26.2 miles with two other people who happen to be holding up a little flag that indicates the pace that you want to run. Because if you do that, your race result is unlikely to be achieved. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Pace groups in the marathons, as I often ask, why would you trust a stranger with your goal? It's unbelievable. So yes, avoid pace groups in your race at all costs. Not to mention the fact that most of the time they're running even split plan when that's not the way to optimally run a race for most people anyway. So it, makes, it doesn't make sense on a couple different levels in the context of the race. In the context of training, Steve, this is where we can butt heads a little bit. First of all, you know, I get your points, which is that you don't want pace groups to become a crutch for people or something that might cause them to hold back. But at the same time, I mean, you use pace groups. I mean, they're a little bit more fluid and dynamic in your world, but it's not like you have people running out 
by themselves and workouts. I mean, occasionally, certainly that happens. But for the most part, you're pairing people up, you're pairing up little groups saying, all right, you guys work together in your in the context of your training. So you're using pace groups. But maybe- I'm not using pace groups, Chris. What are you the using? people what in my that? groups are putting themselves into pace groups. I am not creating pace groups. You're- I disagree with you wholeheartedly there. <laughs> But okay, so you're not creating them, but you are encouraging people sometimes to work together, right? I have a, I am, but I'm not setting them in. I'm not as the coach creating a a specific pace group for people to run with. On a Saturday morning, when somebody shows up at Rogue and has no idea what they're running, I'll say, "What are you trying to run for a marathon?" And they'll say, "Oh, I want to run four hours and fifteen minutes." And then I go around all of Rogue and say, who is probably running four hours and 15 minutes? And then I take and I put them with that group of people. But that's not a pace group, Chris. That's just people who happen to run around the same pace or have a goal that's similar to the same goal that the other people have. What I'm talking about are hard lines in the sand about what we're going to do. And I know what you're saying. I agree with what you're saying. (laughs) I don't agree that I create hard lines in the sand or that I encourage that in any way. You don't. You don't encourage Careful, you, I'm punch you. From all the way from Colorado, I'm gonna punch you. <laughs> you don't you definitely don't have hard lines for sure, but you do encourage us to work together at times. And yes, that, I do. and that's a big 100%. that's a big part 100%. of Team Rogue. So it's just a little bit looser way. It's it's still teamwork, but a little looser for sure. But I hear you. I mean, they can definitely be a crutch. That's a challenge. I obviously, as I think we've talked about, am a big believer in using those groups for a variety of reasons, but I also manage them pretty fluidly. At least, you know, we reset our groups in my, in my team several times a year. So people are able to flex and move. And then of course, as I see people needing to flex and move within a cycle, even between resetting those groups, then I'll move them around based on how they're progressing or how their goals are evolving. So I get the idea of making sure they're not too rigid because that can definitely hold some people back or it might put people in a situation where they're constantly working too hard. You know, I do think your overarching point of even if someone's using pace groups or working within a pace group, it doesn't usurp or it shouldn't override the need to listen to your body. And if you find yourself on a given day struggling versus those that you normally run with, you should definitely listen to your body, get your effort right, drop back if you need to. I also I often tell people in my groups that, hey, if you're struggling on a given day, I still don't want you run, running by yourself necessarily, but hang back, drop back to the next group on the road, and then pick up, you know, pick up the workout with them and see how that feels so that you still have a little team to work with, but you're not necessarily forcing yourself to run a certain pace when your body's just not having it. So you're right. It shouldn't ever override the need to get the right effort in yourself and to adjust if you need to based on your individual feelings on that day. So on that point, we can agree. Yep. All right. So we'll go to my number three, which in some ways is related, which is that one of my pet peeves is seeing people race each other within a workout or when they're on a run on the trail, maybe kind of finding somebody to chase or race. 
that may be passing them on a trail or a loop because it's counterproductive. So I'm, I'm anti-racing in workouts. You aren't winning trophies. You aren't achieving personal bests necessarily in the context of workouts. And, you know, I, I give this a little asterisk because I think the last repeat on any workout, oftentimes you can have a little flexibility to push a little bit, but, but for the most part in workouts and on training runs, you should not be comparing yourself to others. You should not be racing others. You should not be trying to beat people because what you're likely doing, if you're doing that is not achieving the goals and the purpose of that workout. You're probably stretching yourself too much, putting yourself too much on edge, potentially risking injury. I saw this. I've seen this in workouts. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not thinking of individual people, but I've seen this certainly happen in team rogue situations where people are, you know, worried about racing each other instead of achieving the purpose of the day. And what, what, what's happening there is again, you're risking injury, but you're also risking missing the complete purpose of the workout and therefore wasting the time you spent invested in that workout itself. So don't do it people. And if somebody comes up to you on the trail or on your run, wherever you may be running and they pass you and and this happens, I think, particularly for men, you have this ego that happens when somebody passes you. You feel like you have to pick it up a little bit, chase someone, maybe try to beat them in the context of your loop, a random stranger. That's silly. Stop it. And I know women particularly experience this where they might pass a guy and then that guy tries to keep up with them or chase them. Like, don't do it, guys. If you get passed by a female, on your normal run, it's okay. Let it go. There's a lot of strong women. Tip your hat. Yeah. Tip your, Tip hat. your hat. There's a lot of strong women out there. For me, I know in the environment that we train in, most of the time getting passed by a female is a badge of honor because we've got such badass women in our groups. But, but just don't do it. Don't race in workouts. Don't chase people on the trail. Focus on your day, the purpose of your run, your workout. Achieve that goal at the effort that you need to achieve it and move on. Chris, we have two terms for this at, at, at Team Rogue. The first one is jack wagon, which has a wider, a wider variety of meanings beyond just racing and workouts. Although the few people that have got jack wagon as a, uh, a nickname, they were definitely doing that, right? Or am I not? <laughs> right. Um, and also the uh the uh, term of workout champion also comes into play here very frequently where people have a want to win a workout but then are behind everybody else in a race scenario so there's that as well completely agree yep all right so you're number four my number four my number four let me see here let me think of which to where I want to go next um, I guess my number four is going to have to be um, negative self-talk Chris this sort of uh, follows in the last one that I had but uh, I I just think that in essence there's um, this idea that 
self-deprecation is a good thing, and it is a good thing from a humility standpoint, but negative self-talk is one of the most easy fixes that an athlete can do to turn their running from a shit show into epic shit, right? If you want to flip the script from what's happening with you in an experience of running on a consistent basis, check the internal dialogue that's happening. And Chris, when I talk about negative self-talk, this is not outwardly voiced. This is not using the vocal cords. This is happening inside the cranium of the individual where they are consistently setting themselves up for less than optimal results because they haven't framed their current situation appropriately. And this goes back, Chris, to being an authentic human being and being willing and comfortable and at ease in the current place that you are. That doesn't mean that you have to be somebody different. It just means, and it doesn't mean that you don't continue to, it doesn't mean that you don't want to be something better. It just says, today I am here and I'm going to go about doing the best I can possibly do. What I am certain is happening in many, many people's minds, instead of saying that, is I feel terrible. It's so hot out. I'm so tired. I didn't get enough sleep. Um, These people are so fast. I'm so slow. I mean, I can come up with dozens and dozens and dozens of negative self-talk feedback loops, conversation loops that are happening that make me crazy. Because listen, I'm not the greatest guy in the world. But the last thing I'm going to do is let the rest of the universe or my own self grind me down. I'm sorry. I'm going to take enough personal power and enough personal wherewithal to go out and chase the things that I want. And I'm not going to wake up in the morning and say, oh, I suck. If I made poor choices the night before in food or drinking or sleep or whatever else, I acknowledge it, state it. And then move forward to try to have the very best possible day I can have. And the athletes, Chris, that I work with that I know are in that mode who work hard on removing negative self-talk from their day-to-day habitual processes and import proper positive feedback loops and conversation loops, the level of performance that I get out of them as athletes and as people is mind-boggling compared to the people who are negative. It is literally hard for me to wake up in the morning and work with people with really negative self-talk conversations. It is uh, initially when I first meet people and they have those um, patterns, it's intriguing to me because I like to start to work with it. But I find out very quickly those people who want to get better and those people who don't want to get better. And the people that don't want to get better, I'm sorry, but I'm just not going to work with them consistently. I'm not going to get into their space. It's not my job. There's no dollar amount that's enough for me. To, to make, to work with somebody who's going to shit on their day and my day to boot. So people, if you really want to see a game change in your life and in your running, watch your self-talk. You can easily stop it. I've used this before where we talk about being a robot. And as soon as you hear self-talk come up and say, I suck today, say it like this, I suck today, robot. And you will immediately recognize how fucking stupid that line of statement is. So every time you want to start to do self negative self-talk, if you want to kick that habit, talk like a robot, 
It will immediately make you laugh and realize how stupid that line of conversation is. And it will help you begin to start inputting positive self-talk conversations, positive self-talk dialogues that will allow you to seize the day, chase your goals, do epic shit instead of sitting around and wallowing in your own shit. (laughs) I don't even think I have to agree or disagree with that. It's pretty straightforward. I will remind people, you know, and this ties back to my first one about I'm slow, that this this idea of turning off that negative voice in your head does require some work and some practice. You know, you mentioned the robot voice and sort of cancel, cancel, cancel too, I think is another tip you've had trying to get people to recognize when they're doing this and just shut it down by saying cancel. But also just breathing positivity into your world. And if that's something you find yourself saying, as an example, I'm slow, then shift it. Wake up every morning while you're brushing your teeth or after whatever, and just look in the mirror and say, I'm fast, I'm fast, or I'm strong, whatever it may be, but start to reinforce the positive things in your life with positive language. And it's not something that will just happen overnight. It's not a flip, a switch you flip in your brain. It's something you have to work on. And we've talked about this a bunch, but really start to cultivate those positive phrases to replace the negative ones. All right. Number four for me, Steve, is probably the one that might make people the most mad. We'll see. But (laughs) this is one of my biggest pet peeves, especially on social media. It's the ultimate running humble brag, I think. And it just drives me absolutely crazy. But when people say, I just ran a half, but didn't train for it. Mentioned, but I still ran X time and I'm still awesome anyway, right? And so that just absolutely drives me up the freaking wall. I am not impressed by anyone running a race of any distance without training because anybody can do something without training. That's not impressive to me. What's impressive to me is the people that do the work that are willing to challenge their potential by running consistent mileage, by doing workouts, by thinking about all the things that we think about in terms of mental training, having the right balance between stress and recovery, having the right supplemental activities in their life, the discipline of training to a certain result. And whether or not you hit your goal, I don't actually care. All I care about is what you're willing to put into it. And people bragging that they're able to run a half marathon without training and run a certain time without training, who cares? Even if that time is quote unquote fast, you know, let's just say somebody ran two hour half marathon without training. What does that tell me about them? For some people, certainly that might be impressive. But for me, it's not because what's their potential? If they can run a two two hour half marathon without training, then they could probably run significantly faster if they actually put the work in. And whatever that number is for you, I don't really care. All I care about is are you doing the work like the rest of us that are really committed to the sport? And are you challenging yourself in a way that earns respect? Because bragging about not training for a race and doing it on social media, sorry, not impressed. What do you think, Steve? I'm with you, man. I I think this entire 
initial conversation we had about starting this quote unquote soapbox conversation, or as I called it, or in your case where you called it um, the uh, the the you called it the pet peeve scenario, um, is basically this idea that uh, I am going to tell you how great I am without actually indicating that I didn't do what I said I was going to do, or it's just a, it's just, it's just bothersome. It just, it doesn't make me, it doesn't make me as angry as it makes you. It makes me sad. It makes me sad because I'm like, you, people just don't recognize their own self-worth and they don't recognize that um, even doing it in the first place is awesome. We just don't need to hear about how you might have been more awesome if you had really cared because who've, if you don't care, then why in the world should I care, right? I mean, ultimately, it's what it comes down to. So, yeah, I mean, this is one of my biggest pet peeves, but I, I, it also is one that I just don't know exactly how to um, to change because people sort of walk into this world with that kind of an attitude already, and it's kind of a hard bubble to pop. Um, although I'll say I don't have any problem ever trying to pop those bubbles. We're trying all the time, <laughs> trying all the time. So, yes, fight the good fight. Not training for something, not impressive. All right, your number five, Steve, as we start to wrap this all up. Right. Here's my final one. And this one, um, we're already, you and I, we're, we're, you know, these other pet peeves that we've talked about, Chris, I think we, we do walk our walk, right? And we do talk the talk about the way we try to act in our own lives and with our own athletes in terms of trying to adjust these pet peeves. But this final one, I'm 100% certain that um, you and I are doing our very best work to try to get this uh, pet peeve off. But I just feel like it's going to take a long, 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 long time for us to get there. But this podcast is one in which I feel very confident that we are beginning to, to break um, this, this, uh, this sort of glass ceiling that comes with the sport of track and field not being recognized as a quality sporting event in our world. Um, the lack of love for track and field among the general populace and the media frustrates me greatly. Um, I think that anybody can understand how trying to race other people from one point to another point is sort of built into our DNA. It's like what we are as being human. And so many of the other sports that get coverage in the media, like football and basketball and baseball, um, they are running with other things happening, either with balls in hand or hitting a ball and then running. So running is a part of nearly every other sport other than golf, which really to me is a pastime. But anyway, we'll leave that one alone. Um, and so why don't people recognize our sport of track and field as just a truly authentic and amazing experience. And it's so easy to understand. There aren't a whole lot of rules, Chris. It's just start line, finish line, winner, or as the, and as the, uh, the, the people on the BBC like to say, first loser for second place. Um, I just don't, I just don't get why it's not understood across the board throughout our culture, throughout all of Western culture and throughout the United, the world as a, as an event with, with real, real compelling storylines. And it's especially disappointing that that doesn't happen in the United States with how many young people we have competing in this sport. Cross country is one of the most participated sports 
in the United States, if not the most participated in sport. So, so many people understand the sport from a real base level. They either ran it themselves or their children ran it or their brother or sister did it. They understand what's going on. So why is it not respected? So that's my first step on my pet peeve or my soapbox, Chris. But this next one I'm going to get on is one that might offend some of our listeners. And that's that if you are a person that pins a number to your jersey and runs a race, then you should be following our support very closely. And you should be Facebooking it, Instagramming it, tweeting it, discussing it, sharing it, doing your part to make people realize that the thing that you do is not just about raising money for charity, not that there's anything wrong with that, not just a selfish endeavor to try to get people to pay attention to how fast you are or to how tough you are for how far you ran for a distance or any other reason, but that we value this as a sport, as something that matters in our world. And if every person that pins a number to their chest to run a race would watch and ask their local TV stations to ask the to look at the websites that they go to to talk to reach out to the ESPNs of the world and said, "Hey, we love this event. We love this sport. Will you show us more? Give us more." It's going to take us as runners, as joggers, whatever you want to call yourself, get out there and start pushing this sport. Because we're going to lose the next generation to other sports again and again and again over time if we do not get this to pay dividends for people from a sporting perspective. There it is, Chris. That's my rant. <laughs> well, I feel like we do 30-minute rants for every intro on this topic, so there's not much more to be said. But yes... But I'm calling others out, Chris. I'm asking somebody who got this far into this podcast today, you know, this time that they're listening to it, to not just listen to our first 30 minutes, but to act in some way, to share in some way the excitement that we've helped you feel about this so that we can get ESPN to pay attention to us and, wa- and, and recognize us beyond just the 100-meter sprinter but all the other compelling storylines that are out there for track and field and marathoning in our world. Yes. Share the stories. Get it from us. Share them with your friends. Get other people excited. Engage with athletes as well through the interwebs. All good ways to light the fire and nurse our sport. All right. My last one here, Steve, not quite as positive maybe, or doesn't have the same positive flip side that yours did, but we'll, we'll throw it out there anyway to finish things off here. Another pet peeve of mine is when people say, I was on pace for X time through this point in the race, but then didn't get it or fell apart. You often hear this in the marathon say, I ran, I was on pace for a 430 marathon through 21 miles. Well, guess what, people? It doesn't matter what you were on pace for. All that matters is your finishing time. And it it absolutely is crazy to me how people think that they could somehow get credit <laughs> in 
in their mind or in other people's minds for being on pace for a certain time through a certain point. All that matters is your finishing time. And some people might say, Chris, you're being harsh. Well, isn't it reasonable to think, you know, and kind of compare where you are at certain points in the race to find lessons and so forth? Sure. Yeah. You want to find lessons from every race and figure out where you went wrong, perhaps in executing your pace plan or how to learn from your your pacing strategy so that you can get better the next time. But that's different. It's this outward projection of, hey, I am the time I am aspiring to because I was able to run the equivalent paces for a subset of the race. Like That's what I'm talking about here. And that's ridiculous because you are what your result says, as we said on one of our episodes with James. And you don't get credit for running your pace through a certain point. Now, there are lessons to learn from that that you can carry forward, certainly. But you don't get credit for it. So stop talking about it that way. If you want to say, I was on my plan or whatever you want to say, that's fine. But don't project outwardly like you somehow get credit for what you were on pace for because you don't. You just don't. And, and I think in a lot of ways, it's counterproductive because it, it puts your focus on what you think others care about versus really digesting the outcome of the race, what you learn from it, and then getting back to work. It's, it's sort of people's way, I think, of justifying their performances, of making others you know, feel good about what they're doing, or somehow it's an ego thing. I'm not sure, but I think it's a counterproductive process, not only because it's not real, but because it takes your energy and focus off of the real lessons you need to learn from the race, which might include things like you just went out too damn fast. Like, I don't care if you were on pace for a certain time. It might mean that your race plan, your strategy was stupid relative to your actual end goal. And so I think that kind of thinking, those using those words is both counterproductive from a standpoint of taking the real lessons and from the standpoint of you know, caring whether people, what people think about you, which is just crazy to me. So there you go. My last rant. You can't be on pace for a certain time until you're actually at the finish line. What do you think, Steve? I mean, ultimately, my first thought when you said this is that I would say you suck if you didn't run the pace that you ran. But I do know it's probably way more accurate to state you planned poorly, you didn't train effectively. Or you have no freaking idea what's going on in the world of distance running. And all of those things are much nicer way of saying of saying it than you suck. Because people don't really just suck because they didn't do it. They probably just didn't have the information or know. And so educate yourself, people. Chris, you're, this is a great one to end on, I think. Because I think in a lot of our podcasts, Chris, we're always very positive. And we're always encouraging and everything else. But in some sense, it's also like, people, pick the ball up and run with it. Like, you got to do it yourselves. We can only give you, if you're listening to us and not act, actually implementing discussion points that we're talking about, well, then what the hell? You're like a magician who doesn't practice magic. Like, stop it. Like, do, do, be who you say you are, people. That's our most important point. And that's what we're trying to do here is to make you into the athlete or help you become the distance runner athlete that 
can take your event and your sport and yourself to the next level. That's what this is all about. So getting yourself accurate, understanding accurately where you are towards what you want to achieve is crucial and essential to that piece of the puzzle. So I'm with you, Chris, 100%. Preach on, brother. Preach on. No doubt. To me, it's just thinking that's a barrier to becoming a master of your craft and a barrier to getting that goal next time. So there you go. So maybe that was a good one to end on. We will wrap it up there. I think I think we had a good balance, Steve. Some, you know, with more positive twists and some more negative rants directly. But that was definitely fun to go back and forth and kind of mix it up. I'm looking forward to the more people telling us that we suck than people who tell us that they loved us. But we'll see what yeah, happens. Yeah, there you go. Some of these folks like punishment, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, there you go. If you disagree with any of our rants, let us know. You can send us an email, chris at roguerunning.com, and perhaps we'll, we'll talk about some of those follow-ups if anybody has any on future episodes. All right, there you go. That's episode 76. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.